We live in a broken world, and we are broken people. Where can we find healing? Nehemiah faced unimaginable challenges and opposition, and yet through perseverance and faith, he accomplished great things for God. Like Nehemiah, the difficulties we encounter may seem impossible to overcome, but God gives us the grace to accomplish what he calls us to do. Exercising our faith in God is the beginning of the path to redemption. Well, good morning, everyone. As uh, Eric said, we're going to conclude our series this morning. And, uh, you know, if I've heard it once, if we've heard it once, you know, we've probably heard it a thousand times, that we have a crisis of leadership uh, in our culture, in our world. And we see that leadership crisis played out on a a lot of different levels. At a personal level, people don't know how to lead themselves, much less other people. And so we see that people lack an inner moral compass, a kind of North Star to guide them in decisions. Uh, People don't know which principles to live by. There's no sense of truth or rightness or even sobriety. I'm not just talking physical sobriety, but emotional sobriety. Uh, Each person does what seems right in their own eyes, no matter what the cost to self may be, no matter what the cost to other people may be. There's this profound erosion of character that we witness on a daily basis. We see the leadership crisis in the family. What, after all, does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a husband or a wife? What does it mean to be a father or a mother? Uh, The hearts of fathers are turned against their children and and children's hearts are turned against their parents. Where we see so little concern for honoring one's parents, honoring one's vows, honoring the marriage bed and keeping it pure. Uh, So little concern for remembering and honoring the wife of your youth. Uh, Where is the concern for covenantal faithfulness of both heart and mind, body and spirit? Uh, We've, in the family, we've become an adulterous, pornographic, promiscuous kind of people. And it didn't happen overnight. It's been a slow drip. And uh, I don't care much this morning for our purposes to speak about the leadership crisis on the largest cultural level. If you're a partisan, and you imagine that the leadership crisis is singularly red or blue, left or right, Wall Street or Washington or Main Street, Uh, you know, a social, political, economic leadership crisis permeates every branch of government, every office, every house, every chamber, including every industry, every corridor of power, whether it's private, whether it's public, whether it's a social sector industry, uh, there is a leadership crisis that permeates every institution, every corporation, every entity. But that isn't so much our focus this morning. Uh, The grandest leadership failure of all is spiritual in nature. And the one that should be of most concern to us is the one that happens amongst us within the church. If the very people who are called by God's name 
cannot get their own spiritual house in order, then what business do we have demanding culture gets their house in order? It's a very important question to contemplate. If we can't get our house in order, how can we tell the world to get theirs in order? This is the essential crisis that confronts the people of God at the end of Nehemiah in chapter 13. Having experienced spiritual renewal, eye-popping, eye-opening spiritual renewal, right? Would they make their ongoing spiritual renovation a priority? Would they make those hard, costly, God-honoring decisions day in and day out? Would they continue to root out the problems and sin and corruption in their midst? Or would the people of God succumb yet again to the gravitational pull of human nature and that of worldliness? How would things play out post-revival in the story of Nehemiah? I think the more that I've preached through this and reflected on this book in the, in the last couple of months as we've preached through it, I think this is a ready-made Hollywood movie in so many different ways. It has all the elements uh, that you would script if you were a writer of drama and, and highs and lows and irony and everything combined. Before we jump into Nehemiah 13, I want to frame the challenge of spiritual leadership just for a second in the words of Jesus. In John 17, Jesus prays that his people would be united together that they wouldn't be divided. And he prays particularly that his church, though in the world, would not become of the world. Just let those words ring in your mind for a moment. That the essence of spiritual leadership, whether it's self-leadership, family leadership, church leadership, is how do we exist in this world without becoming of the world? That's John 17. Or we could use Romans 12, where the apostle Paul frames spiritual leadership as worship. He admonishes us that in view of God's mercy, we not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but that we be transformed. And there again is that tension. How do we not conform, but how do we continue to be transformed? We're to be a transformative community that's in the world, but not of the world. Salt and light. Our house is to be ordered by God himself with Christ as the chief cornerstone, with God's word guiding and directing every aspect of our lives. And when our house is well ordered, the church, the people of God are an explosive force for good. But when our house gets disordered, uh, it gets disordered in a very bad way. And, And that's what we see in the story of Nehemiah. Now, if you have your Bibles... And you can turn to Nehemiah 13. I'm telling you, it's the most ironic chapter probably in Scripture. I don't know, maybe not. But it just, there's so much irony in this chapter. And it's so real to life, you couldn't make it up, you know. Uh, But in Nehemiah 13, we read these words. That at the time the book of Moses was read publicly to the people, the command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. And the reason why is because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them. But our God turned the curse into a blessing. 
when they heard the law, they separated all of those of mixed descent from Israel. Now, we have to be very careful with a passage like this, with verses like these. Uh, Jesus explicitly taught in the New Testament. And the reason that we have trouble with these verses is because we remember what Jesus taught, that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations. And all nations means all cultures, all races, all ethnicities, that everyone should be welcome into the assembly to pray and to worship God and to connect freely with God. That is as core to the mission of God as anything you'll read in Scripture. What's in view here, however, is that there was a certain group of people who were very openly and brazenly hostile against God's people historically. And not only did these folks deprive Israel of vital necessities, food and water, but they also hired a prophet, Balaam, to spiritually curse them. And so we live in a time when tolerance is kind of the cardinal reigning virtue. And implied in this virtue of tolerance is this idea that everyone belongs, that, that everyone, that uh, everyone deserves a seat, so to speak, at the table in the assembly. But if a person is openly hostile to God, think about this. If a person is brazenly hostile to God's kingdom and God's people, if a person is hostile to God's purpose and plan and will, hostile, hostile to the gospel, Hostile to the authority of God's word. Hostile to all things moral and decent and good and pleasing to God. And even more than that, if a person wishes harm and evil on you or on your family and people you care about, ought you not separate? (laughs) Ought there not be a separation? Does tolerance make sense in that context? When somebody is physically, but even more than that, spiritually hostile toward you. And so what we see is that tolerance cannot, tolerance does not stand alone as a cardinal virtue. And that's the critique of tolerance, is that it can't stand alone. It doesn't exist as a virtue in a vacuum. We have to discern what is the difference, uh, what is the line that should exist between tolerance and separation, between being in the world but not of the world, between conforming and going along and nodding along and, and keeping our, our, our tongue bit like a, a good behaving cupbearer, and when we should step out and risk our neck and oppose and direct and lead and, and do something transformative. Uh, when is each posture appropriate? You can't say tolerance is a cardinal reigning virtue that is always the best prescription in every moment, in every circumstance, in every situation. For the reasons that are in the mind of God, uh, for reasons that were very relevant to this ancient cultural context in Jerusalem, in Judea, during this time, in the wake of all these exiles, in the wake of all the situations that were real to that moment, it was necessary for the people of God to separate, not tolerate, but to separate themselves from the Ammonites and the Moabite people. Now, it doesn't take, again, a lot of imagination to understand why this action is necessary. One of the most notorious 
and famous Ammonites of Nehemiah's day. Anybody remember his name? Tobiah the Ammonite. Remember him? We've been talking about him for several months now. Because he's in every chapter, he pops his head in, he is a disruptor. He is antagonistic, he is opposed to God in every way. And do you remember the name of Tobiah the Ammonite's crony friend? Sanballat. There's a, a couple of guys that were at the church this week uh, at the doors, and I said, hello, Tobiah, hello, Sanballat. And they, uh, I was seeing if they were listening to my sermon. But uh, it was, uh, you know, I won't tell you who it was. But it was, uh, you know, Mr. Poshton and Mr., uh, anyway, forget it. But anyway. But do you remember all the hell that Tobiah the Ammonite raised and Sanballat raised? Do you remember the ridicule, the threats, the abuse that they heaped on Nehemiah and the builders and the exiles as they built the wall? They had to build with one hand and have a sword in the other. These weren't idle threats. They tried to lure Nehemiah to the valley of Ono to kill him. Tobiah wasn't good, and Sanballat wasn't good, and neither was Geshem the Arab, and there's a whole list of these, these characters in the book of Nehemiah. And so do you tolerate, or do you acknowledge the reality and separate? And Nehemiah says we should be separating from the evil influence of these individuals. And yet, what do we read in Nehemiah 13? This is the chapter of irony. Now, before all this, they read in the law, they became aware of all this. Before all this, the priest, Elishib, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. This is Nehemiah's account. He was a relative of Tobiah. And he'd prepared a large room for Tobiah where they had previously stored the grain offerings and the frankincense and the articles and the tents of grain and all this stuff, the new wine, the fresh oil that was prescribed for the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priests. They created room for this guy within the house of God. And of course, uh, Elisha, the priest, you know, he is giving comfort and hospitality and all these things to one of Israel's enemies. That's Elisha, the high priest. What an irony. You know, I, I was reading this, and it triggered a couple of things that I remembered. That back at the end of Nehemiah chapter 6, you remember right as the wall was being completed? We read how the Jewish nobles had been sending and receiving letters to Tobiah. We're told in Nehemiah 6.18 that there was a whole bunch of people in Jerusalem that were bound on oath to him. They'd made their own arrangements with him for their own personal affluence and comfort and financial security. They knew the days were evil. They knew the wall was, the city was vulnerable. They wanted to take care of their families. People were making their own personal oaths to Tobiah. And, you know, it's kind of like making a deal with the mob. You know, don't attack my business, here's some money, or whatever they were doing. But that's the idea of what was going on. And what's really ironic in Nehemiah 6.19, Nehemiah says that as he was building the wall, as he's dealing with all the stuff he's been dealing with, 
Nehemiah says, the nobles kept mentioning Tobiah's good deeds to me. And they reported my words back to him. And they, and all this is going on. There's this, uh, you know, this, this back and forth emailing going on, right? And people are beholden more to Tobiah than they are to Nehemiah and Ezra and the reformers in Jerusalem. The spiritual leaders. They got this whole thing going on beneath, you know, behind the scenes. And so every move, everything that Nehemiah confides in his people, they're reporting back. It's kind of like, and so Elisha is operating completely behind Nehemiah's back to the point that he turns the temple storeroom over to Tobiah. I mean, just hand to forehead for a moment, right? We're talking about spiritual leadership. And let me tell you what is really painful and hard about spiritual leadership. As a leader, and you might be in the parent seat as a leader. You might be in the shepherd seat, whether it's in the church or a group, even as you are confronting evil, giving due diligence to do discipline, to shepherd, to guide, to protect, whatever it may be, even as you're giving due diligence, confronting evil or an evil person, those you are protecting and serving may be giving hospitality and comfort to the enemy behind your back. And they may show more favor to their arrangements or relationships with that person than they are to your spiritual leadership. You are trying to purge an evil influence, but those you are leading are not only inviting that person to the table or that group to the table, but they're actually giving away the whole storehouse to that person. In Nehemiah 6, they're reporting all of Nehemiah's activities back to Tobiah, even as Tobiah is waging a letter campaign to stir up trouble for Nehemiah. I mean, they're having all these comfortable emails back and forth, and it's kind of, and meanwhile, there's another chain of emails going between Tobiah and Nehemiah, and he's threatening to stir up trouble uh, all the way back to Persia for Nehemiah. It's like, okay, you guys are telling me how good of a person he is, and yet this is going on over here. And this is his true character, and this is what's going on behind the scenes. And so you have people operating completely different realities in relationship to, to Tobiah. You've got the spiritual leader who's dealing with the true character of Tobiah, and you've got the people who are forfeiting their own character to make arrangements with an evil person. It's it's a crazy scenario. But let me just say this about spiritual leadership. Again, no matter what seat you find yourself in when it comes to spiritual leadership, it can be a very lonely place. I can tell you there are times in spiritual leadership where you take steps. It might be over your family. It might be over the church. There are times when you are taking active steps to curtail the influence of a malicious person or maybe a malicious, cancerous group of people, or a divisive group of people. Or maybe there's a moral issue, and there's real danger and influence, and there's yeast there that has to be not allowed to work its, itself through the whole dough of the congregation or the flock or, or the family if you're a, a leader of your family. And meanwhile, while you're doing due diligence, people are giving comfort and aid and hospitality and sympathy to the person 
even as they are doing real spiritual damage to the church or to your family. Uh, People are in full communication with them, updating them, exchanging letters and emails and niceties and viewpoints, inviting them over for dinner. If you are a spiritual leader, not everyone is going to be playing from the same playbook. So many other loyalties, friendships, will trump what you are doing as a spiritual leader. Uh, Family relations will trump what you're trying to do as a spiritual leader. And these things will outweigh whatever spiritual concerns you might have. And you will be tempted not to lead in those moments. You will be tempted to go ahead and let Tobiah stay in the storeroom or whatever it is, the issue of the day. Again, all of this stuff is happening behind Nehemiah's back. In Nehemiah 13.6, he explains this is all happening in his absence. He had to return back. He was cupbearer to the king. He had to return back to the king to fulfill his responsibilities and to do business back in Persia. He couldn't stay in Jerusalem forever. And when he went back, it was in his absence that these things started to take hold. And, and uh, it's that old slogan, if the cat is away... You know, the mice will play, you know. But, of course, Nehemiah wasn't going to be away forever. And he discovers the evil evil that's happening, and he confronts it. And what we see in Nehemiah 13 is that there is no room for the Elishibs. You know, there's no room for them amongst God's people. They have to be rooted out. Elishib was a priest, a person of authority. In many ways, he would have ranked far higher than Nehemiah. He's a priest. And he was undermining the spiritual integrity of God's people, the spiritual objectives. They had this revival in Nehemiah chapter 9. They'd rededicated themselves. And and this guy is completely, with spiritual authority, undermining blatantly, brazenly what needed to happen. Nehemiah ordered that everything Elisha touched that everything his crony Tobiah touched be purified. He appointed new and trustworthy leaders. You can't allow the Elishibs to have their way, their self-serving way. By the way, the cost of what Elisha had done as a priest was that all of the Levites and the singers, they began neglecting their posts. They were told, you have this responsibility, that responsibility. They'd set up leadership. They'd set up management. They uh, did all these things from a leadership standpoint. And, and all of that went to pot when corruption took hold within the city. People went back to their own fields. And they're like, we're here to sing or we're here to minister in the temple. And, but it's a sham operation because look what the priest is doing. And look at the evil that he's giving comfort and sympathy to and and housing to. Is it any wonder people don't take the mission of God's people serious when we allow corruption to take hold, when it's not confronted? And these folks, uh, they knew what was going on, but they had no means to do much of anything about it. It was the task of spiritual leaders, of Nehemiah, maybe Ezra, of the elders. It was the duty of priests to maintain the spiritual integrity of things. 
And when those people were either out of town or not fulfilling their responsibilities, in the case of Elisha, you know, they abandoned their purpose. They went back to their fields. They went about life and business as usual. Nehemiah's task of spiritual leadership and your task of spiritual leadership at any level, whether family or in your marriage, is to rebuild trust. And how do you rebuild trust? You have to root out the Elishas. You have to root out those who are compromising the mission of God, those who are compromising the spiritual integrity of what's going on. You can't be passive and tolerant. You have to take a stand, and you have to deal with the problem, otherwise you become the problem. In Nehemiah 13, 14, uh, we find the spiritual leader's prayer. The spiritual leader's prayer. And we see this prayer echoed several times in Nehemiah 13. It's kind of sprinkled throughout. But Nehemiah prays, remember me for this, God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love that I've done for the house of my God and for its services. If you exercise any level of spiritual leadership in your church, in your family, expect to be misunderstood. Expect it. Expect to be an unsung hero. Expect that it may only be God that truly sees, that has the fullest context of whatever your actions may be. At the end of the day, it has to be enough that you've pleased God. It has to be enough that God remembers you because other people probably won't and they won't see your actions for what they truly are in God's eyes. You have to come to peace with this, that it's enough that God sees what happens in the closet of leadership sometimes. The Elisha and Tobiah is what you get when you have intermarriage. Elisha sin by putting friends and family above God. But in Nehemiah 13, uh, verses 15 and 16, you know, this is a chapter after everybody had bound themselves under a blessing and curse. Remember last week's message? People had bound themselves under a blessing and curse that they were going to live and do things a certain way. And one of those things they said they weren't going to do was intermarry. And here they're all ready. There's intermarriage, there's compromise, there's tolerance, there's abandonment. Within one chapter of this grand oath, may we be damned if we don't follow through, right? Already, they've intermarried. And you see what happens with Tobiah. I was remembering also that one of the things that Tobiah did was they tried to encourage Nehemiah to carve out a space for himself to live in the safety and protection of the house of God, like in the storeroom. And Nehemiah says, who am I to do that? And I'm not going to sin by doing it. But yet Tobiah moves into the very, he does the very thing that he was trying to get Nehemiah to do. It just shows you how crazy it is when there's other loyalties that crowd out loyalty to God. And that's the issue with, with intermarriage that you read about in the Old Testament. There's spiritual idolatry, there's spiritual compromise that's inherent in those relationships. When you align yourself, which master do you serve? Do you serve the one you're married to, that you're related to, that you're friends with, that you bound yourself an oath to, or do you honor God? 
And that's why Jesus don't take oaths at all, you know. Don't take oaths at all because you're going to be in a bad situation. Your oath ought to be, if anything, to God's, your pledge ought to be to God alone. But the Sabbath, do you remember? They just made an oath that they're going to remember the Sabbath and honor the Sabbath and not work on the Sabbath and do business on the Sabbath. Nehemiah has to confront them not just about intermarriage. He not only has to deal with the Elisha mess, but now he's got to deal with the Sabbath mess. Because people had made sacrifices. You could be sympathetic to the fact that they'd lost wages and income while they rebuilt the wall. And, and they were trying to probably catch up financially. And i got to work on the Sabbath. i got to work on the Sunday. We're behind on the bills. You could probably sympathize with that. But they were going to disrupt the spiritual rhythm that they'd already had been neglecting. Which was that they stopped worshiping. They stopped reading the law. That's why they had to have a revival in the first place. And Nehemiah's like, you guys are breaking the rhythm that you just repented of having broken. And you've just told God how important it was, and now you're saying it's more important that you do business on Sunday. These verses aren't relevant today, are they? Anyway, Nehemiah 13, verses 17 through 18. Look, listen to Nehemiah. He says, I rebuked the nobles of Judah. I rebuked the, the influencers, the elite class, the, the, the business leaders, uh, the people that you don't dare confront because your livelihood in some ways, your well-being might be dependent on him. I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that God brought all that disaster on us and on this city? And now you're rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath? As a spiritual leader, don't you sometimes hate having to rebuke, correct, and admonish people? You may think that you can neglect confrontation. I think that is one of the biggest temptations for a parent, for a church leader, for anyone in spiritual leadership. You may think you can neglect confrontation. You might think you're doing a person a favor, ignoring, deferring, but the spiritual reality is that we're all in this together. And what Nehemiah is telling them is, when you stir up the wrath of God against his people, you're, I'm of his people too. And what you're doing doesn't just affect you, it affects the whole community. It affects the whole city. It affects the whole nation. Your consequences aren't just your consequences. They're my consequences too. And a spiritual leader has to be sober about that. That this person is not just harming themselves. They're, you know, those chickens don't just come back or roosters don't just come back to roost on, on their fence. They come back to roost on our fence. And Nehemiah says, you guys are rekindling the very anger that brought about the exile. You're messing with the living God of mercy, but a God who's slow to anger, but you're rekindling his wrath. Why are you doing this? Nehemiah even has to threaten to address the problem with force if it doesn't change. He threatens force himself as a spiritual leader. You know, it's one thing to rebuke, correct, and admonish. It's another thing to use your authority to discipline and punish. You know, 
We expect spiritual leaders to tolerate everything and be nice. Those are the leaders we want. We're not so, so uh, akin to leaders who correct, admonish, and rebuke. That seems to be a line too far these days. But imagine someone using their authority to discipline and punish. Church discipline, spiritual discipline, taking someone through a restoration process, creating consequences, punishments. But the leader has to put teeth and accountability into what he says or else problems metastasize. If a child misbehaves and you warn them but you never follow through, there's never any teeth or any consequence, they're going to take nothing you do as a spiritual leader, as a parent, serious in any way, shape, or form. And it's exactly that way in the church. It's that way in leadership every way. You know, there's this tension that you have to deal with as a spiritual leader, and the tension is this. Do you shepherd a heart or do you protect the flock? The shepherd the heart philosophy is, I want this person to choose what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. I don't want to coerce it. I don't want to force it. I want it to come about organically. I want to allow time for that person to mature and grow. And, and there's kind of like a timeline that we'd love to have that's infinite, right? And we're waiting for, for some kind of Christ-likeness and maturity or character to form on this tree over here. And, and we're, we're trying to shepherd the heart, right? As a parent, you have that dilemma with a kid, your child. You want them, you know, you don't want to spank them. You don't want to correct them. You don't want to humiliate them. You don't want to damage their self-esteem, all these things. You want to shepherd the heart. You want, you want them to want what you want, right? But the other side of leadership is sometimes you have to protect that individual from themselves. Sometimes you have to protect the family. Sometimes you have to protect the mission of God, the city of God. And there's this tension of, of when do you shepherd the heart and, and when do you protect the flock? And, and the wisdom of leadership is where you put that line, right? So Nehemiah says more is needed than just words here. In Nehemiah 13, 23, the intermarrying the Sabbath vow-breaking continues. He's warned them, but his warnings have fallen on deaf ears. So what do you do? As a spiritual leader, what do you do? Nehemiah 13.25 is probably the most difficult verse in the book of Nehemiah for the modern church to hear. I rebuked them. I cursed them. I beat some of their men and pulled out their hair I forced them to take an oath before God. Where have our spiritual leaders gone? When you observe anger, a principled individual taking such actions, you know, today we say, well, they don't have tolerance. If they're not nice, they're not credible. But it all depends about what you feel is at stake in spiritual leadership. If the souls of people really lay in the balance of spiritual leadership, the soul of your spouse, the soul of your children, the souls of people in your church, the souls of people that your church might potentially impact as they hold out the gospel, is there room for no more Mr. Christian nice guy? Is there room for it? Nehemiah rebuked. He cursed them. You know, my feeling whenever my father may be cursed or I heard a spiritual leader curse, my impulse was always to say, 
oh, somebody's really crossed some line here. It was rarely to say, oh, they're my, the spiritual leader's crossing the line because they're cursing, they're, they're using bad words. It's like they don't usually act that way, and they are, so there's something really serious going on. You know, when the anger of God is stirred, you pay attention. When the wrath of God comes raining down, you pay attention because something eternal is at stake. And if there's never any anger or outrage about anything by a spiritual leader except this, this kind of warm, nice, ethereal, ah, you know, blah, right? What message is sent? What message is sent is that nothing matters and nothing's of consequence, that we're just kind of existing here and we're all, you know, Nehemiah showed courage, he showed strength, he showed leadership, and he wasn't going to back down, and if he couldn't shepherd their hearts, he was going to protect what needed to be protected. And that's what spiritual leaders have to do. In verse 27, Nehemiah says, why then should we hear about you doing this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God? by marrying foreign women. Why should we keep hearing about all this evil? In verse 28, Nehemiah 13, you ready for this? Why, why should we keep hearing about you guys intermarrying? Why should we keep business as usual on the Sabbath instead of making God a priority in our lives? Why should we just keep turning a blind? You know, I, I'll tell you just real quick. When I started preaching, I realized, I came across this article because of the leader's that I first served under were so tolerant and kind and nice, but it was, they weren't really kind because they're allowing real spiritual damage to happen in the name of kindness, which to me is really hate. If you hate somebody, you allow them to continue to self-destruct. And, and, and these leaders were allowing a congregation to self-destruct. And I came across this article that somebody wrote, and it was called, uh, No More Christian Nice Guy. And I read it, and I was like, Oh, you mean leaders need to act and confront and rebuke and maybe even take someone to the woodshed once in a while. You know, like, that's not a conventional thought, by the way. But just to show you what happens, Nehemiah 13, 28. We're right at the end of the chapter. Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, one of the sons of the high priest Elisha, who, who did Elisha intermarry into? What was his name? Tobiah? Well, Elisha's son-in-law became son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. This guy is double married to trouble. Not just to, to Tobiah, but also to Sanballat. And Nehemiah says, I drove him away from me. He probably did it real gently. Don't you think he was real nice about it? You get Elisha and Tobiah and Sanballat and the circle of toxic relationships that are spiritually destructive out of the middle of God's business in Jerusalem. I drove them away from me. Let me tell you how thankless spiritual leadership is. How thankful it often is, more often than not, sadly. How thankless leadership can be. You ready? Here it is. The conclusion of Nehemiah. You overcome God's enemies, Tobiah the Ammonite, Sanballat the Horonite. You overcome God's enemies. You stand 
firmly, with conviction, pleasing God, right? Only for those you lead to not only betray God, but to marry God's enemies. That's what happens at the end of Nehemiah. Not only do they betray God, but they marry into God's enemies. Nehemiah 13, 29. Remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. As a spiritual leader, you can't always fix everything. And sometimes you have to just turn folks over to God and say, God, remember them. Look at what they're doing and remember it. I put it into your hands. And it's upon this note that the story of Nehemiah concludes, Nehemiah 13, 21. And then I prayed, Nehemiah says, Remember me, God, with favor. Remember them. Remember me. God, don't forget the true story. The spiritual leader's North Star is one thing and one thing only. It's being seen and remembered by God. The leader's North Star, at the end of the day, is being seen and remembered by God and not necessarily honored by men. So on that note, I say, lead on, lead on.